Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Network. This is the Inclusion Crusade with me, Sarah Morgan. I am on a mission to create workplaces where employees feel safe, seen, and supported one episode at a time. So in this episode, I have the absolute pleasure and honor to speak with Miss Janine Dennis, who, along with being one of my favorite humans and one of my closest friends, is also an unbelievable founder and dynamic woman on a mission herself that she will tell you about here in a moment. But she has decades of experience in talent and in organizational development. And I'm going to just let her tell you about herself. So Janine, welcome to the Inclusion Crusade. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so Janine Dennis, and I am the Chief Innovations officer and owner of Talent Think Innovations. It's been my baby since 2013. And today I am focused on human transformation, really. I'm very interested in, you know, how we organize people in one of the most important aspects of their life, which is work. Mm -hmm. And how do we also support them in life? Yeah. which I think is a very different uh, focus than we've been in the last 10 years. You know, we think about, okay, come to work, be a means to an end for me, but we don't think about how we can support people overall in life. They, they blend. We've been like focused mm -hmm. on this work-life balance, but really there's just life and then there's work, mm -hmm. you know? And so I've been really focused on understanding kind of the psyche behind what motivates people, what brings them to work, what makes them tick and, helping organizations to kind of dive deeper and understand their people and create synergies in the workplace that make the work experience far more, I guess, not so much happier, but pleasant than it's ever been. Pleasant. That's a great word. Yeah. Because I think this idea that work, that you have to be happy at work is starting, I'm starting to realize that it's outdated. I think the pandemic, like, pull the curtain back on that a little bit, a lot of it, and really show people how important family is, how important um, like socialization is and enjoying like the little things in life. Like when you're in a situation where you can't really go anywhere or do anything, all those things that are normal to you, it put things in perspective real quick. And so as we continue to go through the pandemic and come out on the back end of it, realizing that work is a part of life, but work is not life, I think is so, so important and poignant and worthy of a show unto itself. So yes, let's keep exploring that. Um, I wanted you on Inclusion Crusade specifically to talk about your expertise in working with employers in creating affinity and resource group programming. I know that this has been a passion area for you for a while. And so I would love it if you would talk us through your experience, why you're so committed to this. 
um, and, and the work that you do in helping to create these groups and to help them be successful? Yeah. Um, so my work in diversity DIB period was just, was not necessarily intentional. I think it's important to point that out um, because I think it speaks to some things we may actually touch upon. I, I was a recruiter, you know, and I worked for organizations where it was a mandate for us to, you know, be diverse in our hiring and inclusive in our organization. And I just noticed that a lot of what we were doing was so performative. I felt like they wanted me to be a caricature of sorts, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of mascot for the company for Black folk to come, mm -hmm. you know, people of color to come. Yeah. And, you know, the problem was was way deeper because we had these numbers we had to adhere to. You know, I always worked for federal contractors that were, uh, had to be OFCCP compliant and mm -hmm. EEO compliant. And, you know, the focus on the numbers, the focus on the AAPs, versus what the actual problems were and and the narratives were in the organization there was just great dissonance between it mm -hmm. um between those two things I should say and I kind of just got thrust into it. I got really passionate about trying to democratize what it meant to be diverse uh you know without taking anything away from any particular group Mm -hmm. And I guess for me, it had to start with me and how I was feeling because I was pretty much the only black woman in either the department, the company, or my position in pretty much every job that I had with maybe the exception to, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't an issue for me when I took those jobs, but it was an issue for me, obviously, when people started treating me as an other. Yeah, yeah. And so it was at Brookhaven actually where I learned about like affinity groups and learned that, you know, there was a thing and that there was actually one for African-Americans at one point there and it had went defunct. And I was kind of like, wow, this is a dope thing. Never had this kind of network. You know, they did a lot of stuff together and I was like, well, what happened? And it was, you know, kind of the dynamic of what happens in a lot of groups, regardless of whether it's an affinity group or a resource group, a lot of the work ended up falling on one person after a while. Yeah. And that caused fatigue. And then, you know, infighting, the and it, then yeah. the rest of it was history. So I basically took it upon myself to kind of look at what they did. I started going around talking to some of the old members, and had already been talking to a few people that were like, yeah, I would love for this to be a thing again. And so we kind of revived it. We just met like several times and started looking through old bylaws, changing the bylaws and, you know, trying to reimagine how we could kind of build it again. Mm -hmm. Also keeping in mind that it was absolutely frowned upon for me to be an HR and be part of it. That had that. Yeah. not been a thing until that point. So uh, interestingly enough, I ended up not only reviving it, but I ended up holding the president role for two years, which was uh -oh. unheard of Poo -poo. and not, not exactly well-received, you yeah, know? Yeah, because the expectation is that we are supposed to be <clears throat> neutral. And so when we choose to 
align ourselves with an affinity group unless it's something superfluous like the golden girls affinity group you know like that that sort but when you when you get into resource groups and now you're a part of a group that's advocating for greater resources for that particular identity they that seen as some sort of you know conflict of interest as though the fact that you are black and a woman and a mother and uh someone who has to care for their parents and like all of those other parts of your identity as though you swipe your badge and those things don't exist Mm -hmm. and that you that you're not still an employee of the company who should be able to be properly resourced um as much as anyone else yeah it's a that's a tough space that a lot of hr people find themselves in Mm -hmm. and i had a hard time for the better part of my career really um you know kind of being business first, Mm -hmm. because especially from a position of being in talent acquisition and being kind of the face of the organization, it's like, you can't be completely business first. You got to, if you're not advocating for your people that are coming through, you've lost the game. You Mm -hmm. know, if you expect to continue to build pipeline and and bring equally good people through, Mm -hmm. you, you better be advocating for them. So for me, I saw it as a power position, but mm. from a political hierarchical perspective, you know, it had not been done. And, and in a lot of people's minds, that's just not what an HR person does. Well, we both know that you have never been one to do just what the typical <laughs> HR person is. And that's what makes you exceptional and, and where you are today. If you had just followed the same path as everyone else, um, then then you wouldn't have all of this knowledge and all of this wonderful stuff to share with organizations the way that you do today. Now, we mentioned this a little bit, but I do want to distinguish this for the listeners. What is the difference between an affinity group and a resource group? And why is making that distinction within your organization when you're starting a resource or affinity group programming, why is that important? So, I mean, you know me, I always think, you know, us in the business world, we do we do a little bit too much in terms mm-hmm. of some of these buzzwords. <laughs> um, because I, you know, I was talking about this in like 2011. I had to mm-hmm. dig up. I was like, wait, I know I talked about this somewhere. And I dug up like one of my old blog posts on it. And at that point, my understanding of it was an affinity group, a resource group was really just a group that had a similar interest, mm-hmm. a, a similar collective interest. It's, I think, in the last decade evolved some because, you know, the business always wants to be able to tie this to some sort of ROI. So I think today they're both pretty much the same thing. You're going to find that it's it at the core. It's a group of people who have a similar interest, Mm -hmm. whether that be race, sexual orientation, religion. Those are usually the most prevalent ones. But I think we've expanded beyond that in the last decade. Um, The one distinction I would say with affinity groups is I think in some organizations, it's a little bit more informal Mm -hmm. in terms of its structure and in terms of what it is meant to do within the organization. Whereas a resource group has been identified as 
a resource really to the business, yeah. right? That they expect that particular group to produce some particular outcome that's gonna benefit the business, usually the bottom line, but mm -hmm. some way, somehow. And I think that's some of where the distinction comes up, especially when you're talking Fortune 500 companies. I think that's yeah. the way they're looking at it. Yeah, the larger companies, I think, I'm I'm starting to see a lot where they're having both, and and I will hear about affinity groups that I jokingly said earlier, you know, that fans of the Golden Girls, but I actually have heard that that's a that a company that where that's a real thing. And that's amazing. Get, and they get together at lunchtime and they watch old episodes together, which I'm like, I would do that. Be a part um, of this. Group. Exactly, <laughs> I, I would be a part of that group. And then you know things like. Um, people who like plants and cooking and you know but it's not the same as your black employees or your women in leadership or you know those other resource groups that to your point the goal is for them to be a producing something mm -hmm. that gives back to the company in a greater way hopefully the bottom line definitely the reputation of the company um, for sure and makes the company more attractive to top talent, all of those sorts of things. So um, it, it is different and it definitely has evolved, but I do think sometimes we, I agree with you, like we'd be doing too much with the labels that we put on things. And I wonder how much of that has to do with, with the money, like, because you don't have to, necessarily fund affinity groups the same way you would have to fund resource groups and you don't necessarily have to um act upon recommendations coming out of an affinity group like if all if people just want to get together and make succulents ain't nothing for the company to do you know um if they just want to get together and watch game of thrones nothing for the company really to do. But if they want to talk about pay inequities among um, marginalized communities and marginalized identities within the organization, now there's some skin, you know, in that game. And so it makes a difference there. Yeah, I think, you know, so it, when I think back to our affinity group, I mean, I guess under the guise of these definitions, it was more of an employee resource group because mm -hmm. we did get funding. But the funding, I didn't, I never felt like it was actually mandatory, whether it was affinity or anything. I think like our funding came out of the diversity office, actually, yeah. and diversity was up under HR. And it was, I mean, it was minimal, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, minimal, like, um, I think, you know, bigger organizations that have more money to play with, whether or not it's, um, you know, Title VII related or not, will throw some money at it, mm -hmm. right? Because I guess the hope you're, I guess the hope is that you're trying to create these centers of excellence within the organization, mm -hmm. yeah. right? That people can go and kind of come as they are, be who they're going to be, but also create, innovate. Um, and hopefully give something really good back to the organization. So, you know, even if it were the Golden Girls group, in my mind as a leader, it would make sense to throw even the smallest pot of money, even if it was just pilot money, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, let's see what what can we come up with and what, can, because I, we innovation comes from 
all kinds of places and particularly you know you just never know what kind of what's going to strike a person um as they're watching something experiencing something together and having conversation about it and what and how they can maybe able to connect that to the work that they do in a meaningful way that can help propel your organization forward so I agree with that because I think it there's opportunity there and just let people enjoy what they enjoy and from the joy that they get out of that let them create and see what happens um because that truly is is excellence <laughs> like that's really you know where yeah. all of that stuff comes from if you are open and willing <clears throat> um to allow that to flow and but there are organizations out there who don't know how to get started with this um, where either we you know there are no groups or where there are groups but there's not a group for for my particular identity walk us through what the process of creating this program or wanting to create a group within an existing program should look like and I get that those are two different things but if you yeah to both of those um, so in a certain way, we thought we had a blueprint when we were creating the African-American affinity group, but ultimately we ended up chucking a lot of what was old because we realized that it didn't work for, you know, the things we were after in the mm -hmm. here and now. Yeah. That brought a lot of, um, pushback, particularly by older members who, you know, felt somewhat slighted. Um, felt like they had built this legacy thing and it's mm -hmm. like you know who are you to kind of come in and, and switch it up yeah, one yeah. of the things that was in contention was the the name mm -hmm. and how we were identifying ourselves it was like well you know it was african-american affinity group but we were saying that we were representing the whole black diaspora and that was not taken well mm -hmm. but it was necessary in that time because we had scientists who were black and not from the US. Yeah. You know, we yeah. one at least two guys, we had black Frenchmen who mm -hmm. fluent French and you know had been working in the US, but that wasn't their nationality. That's not where they were born or yeah. anything like that. And so I just, you know, had a problem kind of just lumping them in and not giving them the credence to express their blackness from mm -hmm. where they sat. So that was one of the things, but you know, from a logistic standpoint, we had to create bylaws. Mm -hmm. um, we had to create a charter, mm -hmm. you know, that really expressed what the group was, what we intended to do, any and all, I guess, you know, activities that we'd be looking for funding for, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, how we felt it would benefit the organization. We had to also provide some statistics, you know, about mm -hmm. employment and, um, you know, attrition and things of that nature to kind of prove how we might impact some of those things as well. And that was basically reviewed by not only diversity, but the lab director okay. as well before we kind of got approved to, you know, carry that name and all of that. I mean, we had somebody in-house um, create logos. Oh, we also had to get about 25 people like to sign to say wow. that they were going to be the founding okay. right members of it. 
Um, so, you know, there, there's some work and some logistics involved yeah. um, because organizations just, they don't, they're not too fond of anything that's going to create um, dissonance even seemingly mm-hmm. in the organization, the fabric of the organization mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. them understanding how it's going to impact their bottom line or something culturally. Yeah. So two questions that come to mind as I was listening to you talk. The first um, is, what if I'm a small organization? What if I am, you know, what if there's only 50 people in my organization? Is there still space for me to create and resource groups and affinity groups within the organization? Or do I have to be you know, over a hundred in order for it to really be something that, you know, is necessary and, and is going to bring that, that ROI that we keep talking about. I think small, medium, or large can do it. I think if we're thinking about the core of why they exist to begin with, they exist because he, there's this otherness that people are experiencing in the workplace, be that from an ableist standpoint, yeah. ageist, yeah standpoint, racial, does it matter? People want this kind of thing. It's the same reason why TCPC exists, yeah. right? Yeah. While not in an organization, it exists because there has been a gap for those that are a part of it um, in their experience of being able to be safe around women of color, yeah. right? Um, in corporate spaces, we've all experienced that. Yeah. So that's the core of the issue whether we call it an affinity group, a, a employee resource group, or some other moniker. A club, is, whatever you right, call it. Right, a club. Yeah, I think yeah. at some particular point, it was the club. And actually, if you go back to the 60s, which is the first time we started seeing affinity groups, they were called caucuses. Mm. There were white caucuses, and then there were just black caucuses. We mm. hadn't evolved yet to all these other delineations, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the nomenclature, it, changes but the core of the problem of what you're trying to solve for doesn't and so you know in a small organization I mean in my opinion you can have an affinity group of five people Mm -hmm. the goal is to make those people feel like they belong Mm -hmm. like they have a place like they can be comfortable in their skin yeah and so it's the psychological you know, safety factor of being able to gather mm-hmm. with, with people who you share commonalities with and explore those commonalities and celebrate those commonalities. And mm-hmm. that I agree with you 100%. That's important, no matter whether you're a small organization or a large organization. I think to your point, like when you get into the bylaws, you know, and how the groups have to be set up, how much participation you have to have, how you fund it. In a small organization, you can't require 25 people. If you if your organization is only 100, you're probably mm-hmm. going to want to do five or 10. But if you have an organization of 1,000 people, 25 people is a nice number. So it really, you have to grow it or shrink it based on what makes sense there. And then looking at how you handle sponsorship, because I know a lot of um, organizations will require someone who wants to create an affinity group to have some sort of executive level sponsor or uh, 
what do they call it? Somebody there from executive leadership to just be the representative, you know, of, of that group, kind of like how you have the teacher who has to sit over the club. They have to be in charge right. of that. It's the same kind of principle. Um, and so you'll have to, you know, you might have to put a larger committee together of people who can do that or switch those kinds of rules up. But I do think there's definitely space for that. And I wanted to make sure to say that out loud because I know a lot of our listeners are coming from small and mid-sized organizations and maybe thinking, I don't know how I can do that, but you can, you can do it um, even when your numbers are small. I mean, in one case um, with one of my clients, one of, um, they were considering actually creating an affinity group for, white people who are looking at wanting to be better allies this was under the guise of everything that was going on in 2020 Mm -hmm. Um, because what I found uh, in working with this particular group is there was a lot of pushback from the blacks that worked there and people of color and a lot of fatigue like they didn't actually even want to go through the training Mm -hmm. Um, wow alongside their white counterparts because their position was like, it's enough to be in this skin. It's enough to live this. I know the score. And so why, why am I, why do I need to be party to hearing someone have to get hip to, you know, racism Mm one-on-one. And so it kind of came out like, well, maybe what needs to happen is maybe there needs to be an affinity group for the black people to be able to kind of congregate. And maybe there needs to be an affinity group for white folks where they can read the books that everybody's already read, you know, and unpack the things in, in this, um, you know, kind of closed door session where it would not then be like we victimizing, you know, their Mm -hmm. peers. And I like, And the other thing I like about that as an idea, and this is, you know, for listening, you know, those who are listening to learn, it's a moment to take note, is that um, to me, that kind of participation, it shows commitment to the organization, um, commitment to growth and development. And if you are an organization who has um, espoused wanting to improve, yourself from a DEIB um, scenario, then you should be paying attention to the people who are wanting to sign up for that kind of a group, who are wanting to, to put themselves out there for that kind of learning. Those are the individuals who you should be looking at for leadership roles and for opportunities for growth. So that's another avenue that puts a plus in the column for this because it takes a tremendous amount of commitment to yourself, to the values of the organization, all of those things. Like it takes a tremendous amount of of commitment to put yourself out there to join an affinity group to to and then to put together programming that is going to be impactful for mm-hmm. that. And then another thing that as you talk about that that I thought about is um, closed groups, because I know this comes up a lot. And you just mentioned, you know, the client was like, listen, um, you know, the, the Black employees are like, we don't need this. We, we want, we need to be among ourselves right now and let these folks go off and deal with their issues. Um, is that okay? 
because I feel like a lot of organizations are afraid of that because it feels divisive um, and feels somehow counterintuitive to this idea of inclusion. So is it that? Um, and if it's not, then then why? Walk us through that yeah. part of it. I mean, again, it's one of those things where you got to peel back the layers as to why we're doing any of these things, right? So mm-hmm. people have to be honest that it only becomes divisive when the scale tips in the favor of those who are marginalized to begin with, mm-hmm. right? And that's the only time it becomes divisive because Beyond that, nobody seems to be concerned with how marginalized groups feel in the workplace, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? But the second we say, hey, go off and, you know, read this book by, you know, Dr. Joy DeGroy or, you know, read this uh, Nikki Giovanni, (laughs) but like like in a close court now. and, And really, again, because this is the work I'm really after is what is the contention? The contention is in, in that group, those people will actually have to face themselves, yeah. right? And, yeah. and in facing themselves, they'd actually have to be accountable for how they're showing up, not just at work, but in general on the topic of DEIB, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, how dare you make me have to face that reality without you black, brown folk being able to being the buffer right where Mm. I can now ask you questions and seem like I don't know like it's it's all very performative Mm. in nature so um you know in my opinion I think closed groups are fine it creates for people who are marginalized it creates the necessary safety Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I do think that they should be able to um decide for themselves as a collective whether they want to invite people in in my particular affinity group, I mean, we were very closed initially. Um, all of our events were ours, you know, unless they were public and they were to create some sort of education for other people, then that that was open. But, you know, in time, I would say by year two, we then started, started to reach out to other affinity groups to kind of say, well, okay, what are your issues? What are you mm-hmm. looking at to kind of see if there's synergies, if we all can just join Forces and that's incredibly powerful. We can get yeah. to that point, but I think expecting that upfront is foolhardy and dare I say a bit insensitive. Yeah. You have to allow people the space to like unpack the trauma and to heal among people they feel comfortable healing with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then when they've done that work and they feel like they're fortified enough to want to join forces with others, I think then the organization can be instrumental in, you know, kind of connecting those dots and saying, hey, have you spoken to the AAPI group or, mm-hmm. have you, you know, because inevitably all marginalized groups have synergies in terms yep. of what they're after. That's what you'll find. It's never been any different. Um, but you expecting that upfront, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot. And here's the other thing with it is inclusion does not mean sameness and it doesn't mean and if we're talking we're not talking about equality we're talking about equity 
like it, the, the the words are chosen and belonging like all of these words that we choose are in this mix for a reason and so to your point people have to feel psychologically safe they have to have that opportunity to heal in order to feel like they do belong and so if you don't allow them space to be among those who they feel most most comfortable with because of whatever identifiers that they share in common with those individuals, then you're actually more of a hindrance to what it is you say you're trying to accomplish than not. And it does absolutely center the wrong thing. And it is then, you know, turning your resource groups into something performative and not something transformative. And you've now missed the point um, and will cause more damage to your organization, its culture, its reputation in the long term than if you had never tried at all. Um, and I think that's what's so a lot of organizations miss that, like doing this work wrong is worse than not doing it at all. And that's why. Mm -hmm. It, this the pace of it sometimes has to be super slow and intentional, or at least feels that way, because you can't make no false moves because it's so, so difficult. The harm that you cause is immediate and lasting and compounded because you're you're dealing with people who are already so compounded and trauma in their trauma that whatever you do, the harm that you cause is already exponential because they haven't most times healed from all of the things that they've experienced before they ever got to this moment with you. So I think that that is really important for organizations to know and to understand why keeping the groups closed um, is a good thing and why um, allowing them, as you mentioned, that time to be amongst themselves and the, the agency to decide that, ah. that we're ready, that we're ready to invite others in, that we're ready to partner, that we're, that we feel healed and calm and peaceful enough to welcome others into, to our little safe space and know that we'll be okay. Um, that's, that's so powerful. And don't miss that um, organizations out there um, and listeners who are trying to achieve affinity programming. Don't miss that moment trying to push for pictures and, you know, social media accolades, because that's what the, uh, and a lot of times that's what it's about. Is like, mm -hmm. I, I can't be there. Like, you know, no, you not if you not a part of the group that is within this identity, it's like, it's closed. And that has to be okay. That absolutely has to be okay. It does. I think, you know, I think one of the other pieces is there, there's a certain level of cultural preparedness that has to happen ahead of spawning this mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? Because if as an organization, inclusion, you know, isn't at the forefront and all you're focused on is numbers, you may not be ready for some of the feedback you're going to get from a resource group or some of the push that they want to see mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, how you're scaling your numbers up or how you're, you're increasing representation. 
Um, that was one of the things really early on for us was like, hey, we don't have enough representation, definitely in support, but more importantly, this is a science organization. We don't have nearly enough representation you know, at, at the scientific level. Mm-hmm. And here's what the availability numbers look like. Mm-hmm. And here's where we're at, you know, and no match. Yeah. right. But yeah. like, you have to be prepared to hear that and to take action as a leadership team, you know, um, it can't be a shock to your soul. Yeah. In other yeah. words, you know, because those groups are, it becomes a bit tribalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that you are now managing, you know, an island of all these different tribes who have different needs. but similar needs, mm-hmm. and they expect them to be addressed, and they expect them to be addressed in a timely fashion. And you're over here scrambling around whether, you know, any of it um, warrants your attention or funding. You know, like you can't yeah. be fumbling on those things in that moment because mm-hmm. you would have lost the value of them. Totally. Yeah. And that's the equity piece that because at the end of all of this, like if you're putting together resource programming at the end of the day, you should be trying to improve upon those areas. It it can't just be about we're going to do this because it's cool, um, you know, or we're going to do this because we heard a podcast or read an article, it has to be, you know, we're going to do this because we believe this type of programming can help move our organization forward in this way. Um, And then that goes to my last question, which is really the the ROI question. Um, Do we, how much do we need to care about ROI for affinity groups? And then when we say, we care about the ROI, what does that even mean? And what does that, what does that even look like? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, to be fair to like what I believe in, I, I've never enjoyed the ROI conversation as it pertains to DEIB because for me, it reminds me of when I was like first in staffing and it was understood that there were there was like this dollar amount over someone's head that you placed, mm-hmm. right? It, it's that. Mm-hmm. And, and like that, from a staffing perspective, that is what it is, but that felt icky to me. And that's the yeah. reason why I got out of it. And then when you start to look at that from that perspective, as it pertains to race and gender and sexual orientation and all these other things, I just have a problem with that because it's to say that people have to prove that they're worthy of fighting for, they're worthy of being able to be self-solvent by mm-hmm. having gainful employment. Like, ew. W- what is that? Yeah, um, You know, it, it's crazy. It just, it sounds crazy because I mean, we all deserve that ability. And I think that's been a large part of my work, especially as it pertains to people who are differently able to, you know, the idea that somehow you're doing some sort of greatest good for these people by allowing them your organization. They're human beings with different abilities as we all have, (laughs) you know what I mean? They have the right right to be able to be employed at the level that their capabilities allow them to so that they can live a quote unquote decent life. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so to put an ROI on that, it just hasn't always sat right with me as far as affinity and ERGs, um, 
you know, I think that the value is often inherent, but I, I think one of the main ways that I felt like it was a value to the organization was the pipeline that we were able to create and nurture, mm. right? Um, we had developed a scholarship fund for high school students, um, you know, that were going to go on and, and do a four year in the sciences and STEM. Mm -hmm. And so being able to fund them on the front end and have them come visit the lab and have them sit with senior scientists that look like them yeah. and inviting them back every summer, you know, whether it was for summer Sundays or um, to do some sort of research project, that was a value add for us because when they were done with their four years, they had spent so much time, they had spent all this time and we had built this rapport with them as investing in them mm -hmm. before they knew what they could do with mm -hmm. what they were going to do. And a lot of them ended up coming back to work for us, mm -hmm. whether it was Brookhaven or somewhere in the complex. So that is the value. Yeah. We got qualified scientists that we were able to nurture. We didn't have to mold them into anything because they were coming from other organizations. That was a unique pipeline that we created with that affinity group. So, you know, I think situations like that are rich and that should be the only thing you're looking at. Thank you for saying that because I think we get it twisted um, because to your point, we when, when we are investing dollars behind programming associated with the groups we suddenly almost like expect them to turn a pro a tangible profit and I'm like where's the tangible profit in like snacks you know what I'm saying but we still but we don't stop <laughs> but where, where's the tangible um ROI in coffee and you know coffee creamer or or pens, you know, they're, they're just, there's some things that you're just not going to be able to put a, put a dollar amount over it and saying, this is the value and humans should absolutely be very high on that list in organizations that claim to care about people whole as, as whole people and not just commodities um, for the organization to use up and uh, churn back out at some point in time. So that is very important. And thank you for that. Um, all right. Well, that is all of my questions today. So I want to switch gears for our last few minutes together because you were not with us when we had our premiere episode with our friend group and we did a little lightning round without you and our name was in you know your name was in our mouths a little bit we brought okay. you up um for those of you who may not have listened I will link to the show notes back back to that episode so you can hear some of the some of the things we said we had a good time um but hilarity ensued and, um, you know, we, you came up a few times. So I want to give you the opportunity to respond to some of the things that we said. Now, first of all, actually, and I'm not even going to ask you this because I know it's true. We, I asked the group who um, among our friend group 
would be most likely to win on Jeopardy? And it's absolutely you. Do you in any way, shape or form disagree with that? You know, I mean, I've watched Jeffrey. I used to watch it with my grandfather coming up. I mean, I know, I know a lot of things. I, I almost want to bet that you'd almost be better. Really? I, I don't I know. appreciate that. You are just so, I feel like there's I, keep a, I do keep a, a lot of random knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's some things that come up on the show that stump me. <laughs> so like, I don't know. But yeah, I, I think I would give that to you. And the other one that came up, the, the first million dollars, and, and I definitely attribute that to you because y'all don't know, you know, Janine stays humble, but Janine also stays on her grind and in her bag and always has multiple pots cooking, almost like industrial size, slow slow and slow grilling out in these streets like it's really it's really a thing y'all just y'all y'all don't know so I am gonna give you that not even not even up for debate I'm I'm (laughs) taking that and then we'll be right behind you on the island like we did pretty much um but the one I do want to ask about is walking down the street naked would that be you and now in, in see, the I heard that one. <laughs> the beach because I I want to say for the record that I did do not see you doing either unless it was a very like private situation but <laughs> you answer for yourself this is your opportunity to set the record so I have to say that this this was probably one of my favorite questions to listen to because it was just the juxtaposition of how everybody was seeing how this was and I have to appreciate KG because she definitely was like you know I don't think Jenny would be walking down the street no that's not me um on a beach yeah I think so. I think so. Private beach or if So, you know, so like full disclosure. So obviously y'all know about the whole, you know, Spain expedition of 2019. Um, They, in quite a few parts of, uh, you know, that Andalusia, they're all, you know, you could do whatever. Like nobody blinks an eye. So yeah, I had that experience in part. It was wonderful. It was great. I didn't feel like anybody was looking at me. There was no otherness about it. I love that. Yeah. So that's totally me. I feel like I would do it on on a beach that was, if it was acceptable there Mm -hmm. or if it was private there. But I do worry about sand in my areas. I do worry about that. But that that happens anyway. That's true. That's true. But I feel like the likelihood is greater when there's there's seriously nothing true between I mean there's just I don't know for me there was just something really primal Mm -hmm. about it yeah that was really freeing and I was like dang why don't we do more (laughs) in the U.S. we're so prudish here in the U.S. it's it's the Puritans in us we just we're so prudish here that's a whole yet not yeah (laughs) yet not at the same time yeah it's that's a again a podcast unto itself (laughs) And then we joked about your love of crystals and the earth and all things witchy poo. 
And, but that you are, and, uh, listeners, she is a whole ass shaman, okay? Like, let's get that straight here. So you definitely, your spiritual journey is very much walking alongside that fierce business part of you. And how does all, how you mesh all of that together in <clears throat> the work that you do in your business because you know we joke and tease but this is a like this is a way of being and and as much as we joke and tease we also are like hey Janine we know the full moon is coming up so when you do this <laughs> ceremony can you go ahead and add right. this to your ritual yeah. so for all of our like jokes and stuff we are also very much tuned into it so <laughs> how do you but how do you blend all of that into the, or do you feel like it's still very compartmentalized? I think in the last, I would say last year was really pivotal in me really being able to blend it. Like I've, I felt mm -hmm. like I just couldn't compartmentalize anymore. Yeah. And so even with like my diversity and inclusion, like pretty much every training I've done, I've figured out a way now to bring healing to it. Mm. Um, particularly with diversity inclusion, I think one of the things I've figured out is it's an extremely difficult thing to talk about, which we all know. Yep. And rather than just jump into it and say, okay, diversity is, equity is, it's like, well, how can I use what I do on the healing and to kind of level the playing ground? bring yeah. people down. So, you know, I started doing some meditation and breath work in those sessions mm -hmm. um, and, you know, giving them some affirmations and, and kind of talking about the humanist aspect mm -hmm. of why we're even here trying to talk about how to treat other groups of people the right way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd ask the question, like, you know, why are we here at all? is what you should ask yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we all cut ourselves right now, we're all going to bleed the same way. Why are we here? And so keep that in mind as I start talking about all these things that are absolutely true and factual, mm -hmm. but it gives you a basis of not, especially on, you know, the, the white end of the spectrum. Um, I didn't want it to feel like I was coming in to demonize, even though there were going to be hard things they were going to hear. I wanted yeah. to give them a compass Right. And so we did some meditation, we do some meditation, we do some breath work. And the feedback I've gotten has been tremendous about people just feeling so much calmer mm -hmm. going into those conversations and a lot more consciously open to hearing what's wrong and how they can be of help, you know, instead of it just being, oh, mom, mom, mm -hmm. this is who you are. This is horrible, you know? So I um, think that's so powerful. And I'm, one of the things from the pandemic, that's one of the things from the pandemic that I hope to see us keep, that is, as much as we're trying to get back to quote unquote normal, that I do hope to see us, um, these, in the workplace, these concerns about um, people's just general mental health and well-being, and the idea of how important it is to connect your head and your heart when you're going into contentious and difficult situations whether they be personal or professional um just you know all of that kind of stuff that we have have been pushed into practice because 
um, we were forced to sit with ourselves in a way we couldn't go nowhere else. So we were forced to sit with ourselves in a way that we have not necessarily had to before. And so that is one of those things that I hope that we keep. And I love you being in the fore because I think it just, it's so on brands for <laughs> for who you are and, and how you operate, how your mind works is that linking of mind, body, spirit and work um, mm-hmm. is is so you and that but also so necessary for this time and has the power to be both innovative and transformative as we come out on the other side of of what we've experienced over the last you know 12 15 16 months so for sure cool so my last question is the one that I ask everyone here and so as I said at the top of the show um, the Inclusion Crusade is is my mission to improve workplaces to be more inclusive one episode at a time. What is your mission? What is your, at this season in life, because missions change, audience, like you, you can adjust those things. But at this moment in time, at this season in your life, what is your mission? What is your, I'm doing this one, one thing at a time? Yeah. Um. I think it goes along with the shamanic training, you know, like for those that don't know what a shaman is, a shaman is somebody who basically stands in the gap of the physical world and the spiritual worlds, mm-hmm. essentially, um, and holds space for all things, all experiences, light and dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in this season, I am enjoying meeting people where they're at in their human experience and, um, you know, trying to, I guess, shine a light for those that are on the dark end, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. Hey, you don't have to be here, but here's the work we can do. And then we can shift here. And also those that pride themselves on being nothing but light saying like, Hey, there's this dark aspect too. And that's equally a part of you as well. And Mm -hmm. so how do we start to integrate all of that so that there's a much more holistic human experience that allows us to experience the full range of what this is, right? Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we were discussing in the beginning about how like, let's come away from this idea that everybody's gonna always be happy. We're not all always happy. It is Mm -hmm. a feeling we all experience at some point or not, but it's not something we should be pigeonholed into. There's sadness and there's value in that. And there's anger and there's value in that. There's, you know, frustration, there's value in that. So I, you know, my focus, my crusade at this time really is to take an integrative approach to, you know, what it is to be human, both in life and business and kind of bringing that to people as the solution of how, you know, we can just thrive and live better lives. I love it. So tell the listeners who may not already be connected with you, um, who may want to, to follow along your journey, who may want to work with you, what is the best way for them to connect with you? The website, it's brand new. I've rebranded. I've got 
a new logo and a new purpose. You know, I, for those that listen, that know me, I've been fairly, you know, quiet, if you will, unless you really tune into my IG, but it's never, you know, for naught. That was my focus was really trying to decide, you know, eight years later, what talent thing needs to look like for the next, you know, decade or so going forward. So mm-hmm. um, talentthinkinnovations.com, check it out. Everything. I finally have everything in one place, which is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, everything you need to know about what I'm doing, the work I'm doing is there, um, you know, the trailer to my book. Uh, the absurdity of doing you rebel elegance for the evolving soul Um, that's there the work i'm doing with town thing power circle that website is soon to launch but it's it's there to see at least the outward facing part of it um so that's exciting and then on social media i'm at miss janina cole on uh, Instagram and Twitter and, you know, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm so active on there. So happy to connect with people there as well. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate everything that you've had to share both about forming affinity groups and promoting affinity groups in the workplace and about the work you do. I love saying you are a whole ass shaman. Like, <laughs> like and that's how I say it every time I say it. I be like, Janine is a whole ass shaman. Like that's how I say it every time. Um, but I just I love that and I love watching this this new iteration and new evolution um of you and all that you you just like stepping into that power and but still being so open and willing to to give and pour back out into others it is amazing you I say it to you all the time you are a force and I just love you dearly so that is it for today's inclusion crusade episode thank you for tuning in please make sure to subscribe rate and review us on all the platforms and once again I am your host Sarah Morgan and we are out